Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. The church as family is one of the most difficult pictures for us to really wrap our minds around, and I think that's for two reasons. First off, the word family is overused and abused to where it has almost no meaning anymore. I mean, think about this. Everywhere is calling you a family. They're like, hey, thanks for coming to our coffee shop out there, you know, uh, cool beans family. We love you so much. Or thanks for joining the progressive insurance family, right? Like, that's just baffling. The worst is probably the use of the word family fam on YouTube, right? You got YouTubers out there and they are teaching you, you know, how to bake a cake or how to rip holes in your jeans to look cool or how to sew holes up in your jeans if you accidentally ripped them. And all of these YouTubers are talking to millions of people around the world that they have never met and will never meet. And yet they have the gall to be like, hey fam, this is Josh coming at you from the YouTubes, whatever it is YouTubers say, right? It is totally a misappropriation of anything with any semblance that looks like a family. The second reason why it is difficult is because so many of us come from imperfect families. In fact, I would wager to say none of us come from completely perfect families. And yet, everyone comes to the church and comes from all of these different and various and confusing and sometimes bad, sometimes horrific family backgrounds, and they bring all of that to the church. And then to think that like what we would call this new, fam- this new group of people following after Jesus, this new church that is being birthed, the fact that we would call that then family just seems a little backwards, a little confusing to us. I mean, there's lots of different people, and uh, you know who knows where you came from and, and the background that you come from, but the odds are at least decent that you have some stuff in your sort of family of history, in the way that you were treated when you were young at such an influential age, in the way that the people who are supposed to love you the most uh, harmed you and maybe did not give you the love that you actually uh, wanted from them or even deserved. And odds are, all of that is sort of floating around in your mind and it coalesces to paint a picture of what family is. So then, to think that family language would be used about this new organization of Jesus. Perhaps even this uh, same Jesus that rescued you from your dysfunctional family past and helped to heal those wounds that your very family had caused, that this same Jesus would then invite you into a new family seems backwards and confusing. But here's what I want to invite you into today. I want to invite you to ask the question whether the church was always meant to be a new and better family. That the church was something, uh, it, was, it was always designed to be something that was better than our individual families, that was, uh, that was not grounded in sort of the earthly world and chaos that we sort of experience in our families, but was in fact supposed to be grounded around our Father who is God. Not so much grounded in broken and feeble human beings. And because of that, it has the potential. And it has, sometimes we're able to catch these beautiful glimpses of the church being the truest and most beautiful picture of family that has ever existed. 
Now, uh, in order to really jump into this, we're going to have to start all the way back at the start. I have got so much great scripture, and it's going to fly at you. Hold on to the seat of your pants. It's about to get nuts up in here as we talk about family, okay? And no one, no preacher has ever uh, uttered that sentence before, so you're welcome for that one. Here we go. We're jumping right in. Plan A was always family. From the very beginning, God created Adam and thought, you know what? This creation is great. I really like it. We've got dogs. We've got giraffes. We've got the platypus for fun over there. But something is wrong. Something is incomplete. And because of that, he created Eve and the first family was born. In fact, it's really interesting if you go back and look at that Genesis narrative. God looks at the world and says, uh, they, or the scripture says that God in plural, meaning like, you know, the Trinity pre-existing all of creation, look down on what they've made and see that it is incomplete. It's not right. And that's because the Trinity was existing already in relationship. And yet humanity or Adam at least had no uh, relationship to enter into. So he created the very first family. Fast forward a few generations, the world starts getting crazy, things start getting messed up, and so God hatches a plan for how to rescue the world from itself, from how to save the world from chasing after fake gods that they've made up for themselves, how to save the world from sinning and chasing after just brokenness and emptiness and instead to follow him. And that plan that he hatched was actually a family. We see this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, take note of that. God's looking at the world. He's saying, hey, this is messed up. I did the whole flood thing. That was not good. Uh, I went through Noah's family. Now I need a family. I need one singular family. That's going to start with this guy named Abram that I'm going to change his name to Abraham. I need one singular family through which I can work so that in him and in his offspring, in his family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, while the Abrahamic family did try and fail a lot of times at that, they sometimes caught glimpses of it, but very often they were not that family uh, that was blessed by God so that they could be a blessing to the rest of the world. They were not that family cho choosing to chase after God even when it was difficult. Uh, they were not always succeeding at that family, but they did produce one thing. They produced Jesus. In fact, if you read uh, in the beginning of some of the Gospels, you can actually trace Jesus' lineage all the way back to Abraham. That in fact, through Abraham, through his family, and then ultimately through Jesus, all of the families of the entire earth would in fact be blessed. And that is exactly what ended up happening. Jesus dies on the cross, dies for all of the families of the earth, and in fact blesses them by giving them the gift of grace that they could never earn, that they could never sort of uh, come up with for themselves. And in so doing, he invites them into a new family. Right, like, let's just pause right there. So you had Adam and Eve. They're like hanging out in Eden. They're walking around with God. Everything is perfect. Everything is right. They sin. They break that relationship with God. And in so doing, a fracture happens. And in fact, it's a fracture that gets sent through their family and through the lineage of every family on the face of the planet. Right? They go in one scene from hanging out with God and walking in the garden to just a few pages later to the very first murder is one brother to another brother. Because of that, 
there's a distance, a fracture between all of the families of earth. What was meant to be one singular family walking and living in perfect communion with God is fractured into millions of families and all of them in their own ways working against the will of God, working against God's perfect ways and plans for our lives so that we might chase after our own selfish desires. And then... God enacts and fulfills his beautiful plan to send Jesus to reconcile all of the families of the earth to himself. To reconcile all those who would believe to, to him, to his family. So that in Jesus' death, the true son of God, he gives up his place so that we might take his place and join him in becoming sons and daughters of God. And that's actually the way that the very first church thought of itself. In fact, at the birth of the church, the way that they referred to each other was not, you know, Christian John or, hey, that guy goes to my church. No, they referred to each other as brothers and sisters. Check this out in Acts 11.1. 1, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. It says that. It uses that term brothers in the book of Acts, which tells the story of the birth of the church 52 times. 52 times. That's how the church was referring to each other. It says this in uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this as he's writing a letter to the Corinthians. He says, I appeal, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. He says in Galatians, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, saying, You now as brothers, you know, the brotherhood of the church, have been adopted as children of the promise, as children of Abraham. And in case you're wondering if it's just Paul and he's just using this kind of colloquially, you know, like if you've been in church for a long time, maybe when you were growing up, you had that weird guy that called everybody brother. And maybe you're like, ah, oh, maybe Paul's just the, you know, well, hey, brother Josh, how are you doing, guy? No, that's not the case. We see this in uh, James, actually, James' letter. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And he says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. John even writes the same thing. He writes that uh, this family will be known by its love. First, that God loved it and they should love one another. And that's sort of what uh, founds and sort of grounds dwell church and being a family defined by the love of God and committing it away. He says this in 1 John 3.16. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, speaking of Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for the lives of are for the brothers. Now, I could go on and on and on and on, and you would all pass out from some sort of like Bible overload. The main point is this, that more than anything else, language surrounding the early church was not organizational. It was not strategic. They were not so busy counting up numbers and, you know, like labeling people or anything like that. No, the language surrounding the early church was primarily family language. They called one another brother. They were sons and daughters of God. They looked at God as their father. And even as we talked about previously, they viewed themselves, or Jesus referred to them as the bride, as his bride, the bride of Christ. 
Family is one of the most primary ways that we can think about ourselves as the church. And in our central text, tell me this doesn't sound like family. Like, tell me this doesn't sound a little bit like the first and biggest ever Thanksgiving, right? So in Acts 2.42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, right there in the very first sentence, they're like, Hey, they really got into listening to the apostles' teaching. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. And the apostles were teaching them all about Jesus. And they were like, yes, 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 we want more Jesus, more Jesus, more Jesus. And they also prayed. They were praying to God so much. They were praying all the time. And you're like, yeah, that makes so much sense. Of course they would do that. And also they ate a lot of bread. And you're like, hold on. Why does that even need to be a detail for this? And yet Luke says this is really important. All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and held all things in common. How beautiful is that? That a group of thousands of strangers got together and because of the love of Jesus, left as a family, left as people who were holding things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What a beautiful picture. Like, isn't that a group that you want to be a part of? A group where there is no need? And take, like, notice this too. This isn't some sort of, like, communist, you know, Marxist whatever. This is like a group of people with, like, no central government who are like, hey, wait a second, my brother over there, he's having trouble paying his rent. What do I have that I can get rid of so that I can help him do that? My sister over there doesn't have any food to eat. I have extra food. Can I give it to her? And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Notice, that's twice, right? He didn't hit on preaching twice. He didn't hit on other things twice. He's like, you know what is super important about these people? Is they ate a lot of food together. I love that. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now that part doesn't really sound like my family growing up, but I really, really love it when it does actually happen and you experience that joy of just the table and sharing it with brothers and sisters in Jesus. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. This was the birth of the church. This is where it all began. The Holy Spirit came, Peter shared the gospel, Many received and were saved. And after that, what did they immediately go and do? They shared meals. They shared lives. They shared all their possessions. They shared and gave and were generous to one another. People who follow Christ are the children of God. And in so doing, that then turns all of us into family. It turns all of us into brothers and sisters. And that is why family is at the heart of the natural relationship of the church. Family is what the church was always meant to be. I think all of our churches don't necessarily look like that today. And that's a problem. We've sort of drifted away from the church thinking of it as a family and we've started thinking of it as, as this sort of uh, this organization or even a, a movement or something like that. When at its heart, it was never meant to be anything less than brothers and sisters living together as family. So, what are some new tools for how we can reclaim our family identity as the church? The first is in holy meals. Holy meals. 
Uh, Anthony Bourdain was actually a, a pretty tortured soul. I'm not sure if you've watched any of his. Uh, he did these sort of travel documentaries where he would go around and uh, he would uh, share meals with people. What's really interesting is that throughout his entire life he struggled with addiction and depression and eventually won the battle and, and he died in what was apparently a suicide. But what the truly beautiful moments that happened in his chaotic life that, you know, addiction, depression, divorce, uh, just chaos, all this kind of stuff, the truly beautiful moments in his life happened around the table. In fact, he built like this travel show around it. It was so great because what, what would happen is he would just show up in what was the most natural and life-giving setting. And instead of, you know, hiking up the, you know, Mount Kilimanjaro or instead of like, you know, pointing at the Leaning Tower of Pisa, he would be sitting around share, a table sharing a meal very often with strangers, but also very often with old friends. And it was beautiful. All of the chaos that was surely a part of his life seemed silenced in that moment and melted away as he was able to do something that is so primal, so life-giving as feeding ourselves so that we might be able to have the energy to live another day and then being able to converse and share that time. I think he was hitting on something. There's something holy, maybe just a little bit magical about sharing a meal. It satisfies our needs, like we have to have it, it gives us life, but I think somehow it, it can be so much more if we let it. And honestly, that's what this sort of first tool is all about, holy meals. You see, if we allow it to be changed, or if we allow it to be more than just a regular meal, we can change our outlook to see it as not just like a chance to feed ourselves or a chance to, you know, hang out and pass the time. But what if it was an opportunity for the divine? What if it was an opportunity for God to move? In fact, making this a tool for the church means that every single meal you're stepping into and saying, man, what does God want to do? What does He want to accomplish in me and in the people around this table over the course of this meal? Meals with other believers become opportunities to experience family in a tangible way. You know what's amazing is that while the early church was breaking bread and we're sitting here, you know, breaking I don't even know, gluten-free crackers or something, whatever it is we're doing nowadays, as we're sharing and passing plates around the table, we're experiencing a little bit of the exact same thing that they were. Like, think about that. You the exact same experience around the table, right? Somebody knocks over a glass of something. Somebody starts to get a little indigestion. I mean, all of these things, like, they haven't changed even throughout thousands of years of the church. It turns our surface level relationship or gives it an opportunity to become something so much more. We can take simple friendships and turn them into family. We can, in that moment, uh, take simple sort of small talk and chit chat and turn it into an opportunity to encourage one another, to learn, to grow, to grow closer together, to grow closer to the God of the universe. And meals with people who don't believe in God become opportunities for the gospel to take root. I'm pretty convinced uh, that... And I don't think there's anything wrong uh, with, like, you know, door-to-door -door evangelism or, you know, like, going out on a mission trip and telling people about Jesus. That's, like, super important. And, and we're never going to lose that from our faith. 
But I think what I've noticed is that it takes people a longer time to really like test out and weigh out Jesus. That, that people want a lot of information. They want to sort of like, you know, they want to know more about the gospel. They want to know more about uh, Jesus. And, and we're just sort of in this skeptical age. Now, I, again, I want to make sure that I recognize that God can just save anyone in any moment, anytime he wants to. So we should be ready at all times to share the gospel. But my point is, I think... Over the next generation, over our generation at the helm of the church, more and more people are going to get saved around dinner tables. That sharing that life-giving meal in that moment, sharing life together, doing something so simple as sharing a meal and talking about the God who is the provider of that meal and that same God who provided us a way to be a part of this family. That's where the gospel is going to take root. So use your meals with intentionality. Use them with purpose to share uh, God's good news with everyone around you, both believers and not. Invite God to join you in that meal. It is never neutral. It has the opportunity to be supernatural. Tool number two is true friendships. Now, just like family gets a bad rap, I think friendships get a bad rap. We think of them as just something that is kind of nice to have, you know, it's something that's kind of cool if you have the time, you know. They become a little bit trite, right? Because when you're a kid, it's like, you know, hey, uh, this guy has a red kickball, so he's my best friend now. And that's really all it takes. But oddly enough, like, we kind of lose something when we lose that, right? And if you follow any sort of statistics about, like, you know, what it means to be living in the year 2020, it's pretty easy to tell that people are having a lot of trouble having meaningful friendships. Loneliness and mental health issues are rising dramatically across the nation, but especially in cities like Denver. And people have tons and tons of relationships. You can be connected with people across the world that you used to know. You can be uh, connected with people that, that you don't even barely know, but you're sort of joining together on some sort of sports league or something like that, whatever it is, there's the opportunity to be surrounded by people and to have interaction. But I think sometimes having all those opportunities actually inhibits our ability to have meaningful, life-giving, and life-changing friendships. You know, it's really interesting if you uh, look at the life of this early church. It was started uh, in the apostles, right? So Jesus is hanging out on earth and he is leading around all of these people, but spending most of his time with these apostles, with these 12. And he looks at them and he says something that is just super strange for someone like him. You know, very odd for a rabbi or a teacher, very odd for the son of God who had a hand in creating the universe and who, had, who was enacting his plan uh, to save humanity from their sins. He looks at these 12 that are following him and he says, if you are following what I'm doing, if you are with me and you are doing my father's will, from now on, I will call you friends. That obviously meant something to Jesus. And I don't think that he was saying, hey, you guys are going to be a part of my board game league. Or, hey, every once in a while, two or every two or three months, we'll give each other a phone call. No, I think he meant something so much more than that. 
And that these 12 people, through their friendship, through the friendship that they shared, were actually going to be the birth of the family of God. They were actually going to be the birth of the family that was the church. That from friendship would become a history-shaping and world-changing, and more importantly, a kingdom of God-building movement that would cover the entire planet and thousands of years all the way up until us today. That is the power that friendship has. And we cannot take it lightly. So... I know it's difficult, and the way uh, that we build these friendships, I think, is built around two things. And these are maybe not like the core of what it means to be friends, but it is at least the most difficult thing for us to do today and the reason why so many friendships fail. First off, you have to show up. You have to be there. You can't really phone it in on a friendship. You can't really sort of like halfway do it. I have a saying around here where we say community equals love over time. And that's to remind us that having true relationships, having true life-giving and life-changing relationships actually takes time. You can't love someone, you know, just from afar and every once in a while. No, it takes being there even when it's easy and even when it's hard, even when it's natural and even when it's not. And secondly, we have to care. And it's funny that I have to make that as like, you know, this is a tool to help you build better friendships. But it is challenging. And especially early on, you get into this weird, almost semi kind of dating relationship, right? And naturally what's going to happen is one of you is going to care more than the other. You're going to be in like a care imbalance. And I'm naming that to make sure that you know that this is like regular and this is natural. That in order to have and to continue to build new friendships, you have to get in a place where you're like, I probably care more than he does, but I'm going to take that on myself. It's in that moment where you're like, you know, hanging out with friends after work and you're like, Hey, uh, would any of you like to just, you know, we're standing here talking in the hallway. Would you like to go get some pizza or something? It's in that moment where you're like, you know, finishing up after you've like had a a club or a meetup or something like that. And you say like, hey, does anybody want to, you know, keep this rolling? We can go have a movie. And it's scary because you're in that moment where you're like, I think I'm about to get rejected. And everybody's going to say, no, it's going to be super awkward. And these people are going to be like, no, we hate you. You're dumb and you're stupid. That's what I'm worried about the entire time that they would say even dumb and stupid at the same time. It's probably more my own self than anything else. But I think that's actually, that taking that risk, taking that extra step, especially with a view to be able to share the gospel with them, to be able to build deeper, more intimate relationships with them, I think taking that view is probably what Jesus would do. You see, uh, so much of Jesus' attitude was like, I'm going to take suffering on myself so that someone else doesn't have to. And if you truly believe that a friendship is something worth having, if you truly believe that building this friendship is going to uh, be life-giving and life-changing to both you and to the other people in it, then we can take that sort of care and balance. We can take that awkwardness. We can take that risk on ourselves so that they don't have to. Here's my final word. In a world of broken relationships and rampant loneliness, people with real friendships, people with real relationships like we see here at the birth of the early church, at the very moment when it was started, at the moment even before Acts 2 when we see the disciples hanging out with Jesus and Him calling them friends, these relationships where they actually loved one another had the capacity and in fact did change the entire world. And if we're to be the church of the future, then we cannot discount the fact 
that that is going to be enacted, that that is going to be perpetuated primarily through relationships, that the church as family is the only way that the church moves forward. It won't move forward because it has a brilliant strategy. It won't move forward because we work harder than any other church that has ever happened before. No, it'll move forward along the pathways of relationship. Jesus, in fact, says it this way. He says, Everyone will know who you are. They'll know that you're my followers. They'll know know that you are representatives of me by the way that you love one another. And I tell you what, if that's not the most beautiful picture of church, I don't know what is. I want to be a part of the church where people say, Yeah, I don't really know what they believe. I'm not really so sure I agree with everything that they do. I'm not sure if I want to be one of those people. But man... If I could love people and be loved the way that they are, I think my life might be complete. I think that's the way in which we display the love of Jesus to the world that so desperately needs it. So go and be the church by being a family. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard, Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church, so we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.